You're listening to Bedroom Beethoven's, where notable music makers break down stories accompanied by songs and melodies documenting growth through their 10,000-hour journey. And me? Well, my name is Cello, your host. I am a bedroom Beethoven. <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to episode 87 of the podcast, an interview with an individual rife with musical surprises, abstract concepts, and ideological enlightenment. It's simply bold, street-level hip-hop with plenty of verve and attitude, exactly what you wish they'd play on the radio. My guest this week is. Uh, greetings, Earthlings. My name is DJ Mr. Len. Uh, some of you may know me from Company Flow. Some may know me from uh, seeing me around in different capacities, working with Merce, Gene Gray, Pharrell Monch, Roosevelt Franklin. I had a label called Smacks. Uh, I've done a lot of work with Prince Paul and Red Matic. Yeah, I've been around. I've done some things. I've done some things in my life. Man, now Prince Paul, Rhett Maddock, and Mr. Len have been on the podcast. I feel like my podcast trilogy is complete. It's like seeing The New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi all at once. That's right, because Rhett, Len, and Paul play it all. Mr. Len and I chat about the company flow days, a little bit of LP, a little bit of the label woes, a little bit of how he's living. The guy's been a part of music for so long, I imagine the interviews with him at your disposal are endless, so it is my job to give you a fresh interview, even in the year that is disaster 2020. Think of this as a bright, shining light of hip-hop on your face in an otherwise bleak year. With that said, going to patreon.com slash bedroombeethovens and give a buck or two to gain access to early episodes, sticker swag, and more. You can visit the website bedroombeethovens.com for merch, episode archives, and other goodies. Oh, and my email is on there too, if you want to talk. Everyone needs someone during these times, right? DJ Mr. Len is on the program, guys. Let's get into the conversation. Yeah, you know, it's funny is Eli posted that photo of you guys the other day and asked everyone to guess who's in the photo. And everyone's like, yeah, that's uh, that's Eli, that's uh, that's LP, it's MERS, and Dub C? Yeah. Is that... Somebody, yeah, yeah, I was like, really? Someone, someone wrote not Dub C, someone wrote Dub... Wow, I was like, really? Like, was, it, was it really that difficult? Like, the guy standing next to LP in the company <laughs> flow years? Like, who else would... Send dog? Who else would it be? Gordon from Sesame Street? I don't know. <laughs> right. You really don't think that was. Well, I mean, you know, that's, I, I digress. You know, I, I'll say we didn't have a lot of videos coming up. You know what I'm saying? So, like, you know, I, I give people a I think it's cool, though, that you have legendary status in the game, but I bet you can go to Walmart and not have to worry about getting mobbed by fans. So it's almost the best of both worlds. Yeah, you know? Absolutely. Or, like, you know, there was, I remember at one point when I was still in college, uh, someone playing a co flow 
song out of their window on something like, yeah, you don't know about this shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, Mr. Len, all I can say is thank you, because as you know, when you when you create an album, people may not know this, but when you, when you go about the planning phase of an album, 70% of the people you ask to be on a record won't show up. So imagine how high that is for a podcast that has no budget. So anyone that agrees to come on, I literally owe you one. <laughs> My pleasure, man. My pleasure. You, yeah, you can send me an email with the subject line "favor" in all caps, and I'll open it. <laughs> I know your pain, man. You know, I I did that record, "Pity the Fool." Trust it was. It's supposed to be a whole lot more people. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, first and foremost, during this pandemic, it's it's hard for working musicians living through this President Trump era. It's rough. Racism, NBA playoff walkoffs, dealing with people in general, yeah. social distancing, man. You know, so how how are you coping nowadays? Uh, you know, sometimes I, maybe sometimes I miss being on the road. Because the last time uh, I just did two tours back to back, I was touring with Everlast and then with Artifacts. I definitely miss uh, being out and working, but you know it, it also gives me a chance to to sit here and and, and like create again. But you know it's uh <laughs> for me things work in phases, you know, and like if I'm not in that phase, you know what I'm saying? Like I have to snap myself back into it. So this was kind of like a uh, like a big wake up call like okay bro like think of something to do like create something now you know so yeah because i, I think we're past the days we're playing surfing birds gonna lift your spirits i think that ended back in may mayish june <laughs> yeah yeah because yeah, yeah. <laughs> like you know it was, it was supposed to be over already everyone thought so yeah no no one could have anticipated and the best thing i ever heard regarding like the last four years is when you said uh, like I feel like the rest of the world looks at america like the neighbor from good times eating dog food and i was like man that's so accurate and and yeah, Chris Brown really does look like Ron from a different world. I agree. <laughs> he does. <laughs> now you got this whole uh, this whole music thing from an eight track tape from from your father. He made it a couple of days before you were born, and it was dedicated to you. Your father yeah. must have been like a real sentimental type of guy if he was doing things like that. It wasn't so much sentimental; it's just that uh, he he was a young dad, you know. So he's like twenty one. So that was just like a it wasn't a normal thing to do, but it was still a very cool thing to do, you know. So it, it was a uh, my, my my dad was more, especially like back back in you know when he was coming up, he was literally known for being cool. <laughs> so it was like, here let let me let me put my son on real early. So you know like I'm dude like I'm I'm listening to like Ohio Players, Early Jackson Five, uh, Harold Melvin the Blue Nose, like things that like you know a, a baby wouldn't know anything about, you know. But this this was like I'm digesting this. Are there any songs on that tape where even today, if you hear it, you get like a little lump in your throat? Definitely not. Not even like a lump in my throat, but it's it's like it it it, it fires off like all, all the uh, the happy memories, you know. So it's a uh, spirit of the boogie by Coolie. Get up, get up. Let's go, y'all. The boogie is back again. For the boogie, there is no beginning, and there is no end. Ha! Come on! Yeah, I mean, the fact that things like that kind of shaped who you wanted to be for the rest of your life, you must have been a real focused individual growing up. I mean, like, learning how to speak French at age eight, you were on your way to Harvard. (laughs) That was definitely me. But now you know I I did um I did learn to play instruments. I, I started with clarinet. Actually, in church played drums. Then in school played clarinet. Didn't like 
something about the clarinet. I think it was just like the overall sound. It just sounded like you're uh, kind of like hurting a moose. But uh, I switched from that to saxophone and then stuck with saxophone all through the rest of school. So I played alto, tenor, baritone. Then like in the marching band, like I would play uh, bass drum and tries and quads. Why woodwinds? Why did why were you gravitating towards that and not the brass? I don't know. I, I think I, I the the sound of the saxophone it was it, it was starting to kind of fall out of popularity, but it was still something that like when you heard it, it, it perked your ears. So like the next time you really heard saxophone was uh being sampled for like uh be a father to your child, you know, but. In the '80s, the, the last real big sax solo was a uh, like probably like Caribbean Queen. So if I if so if I handed you a baritone sax right now, I bet you could tear the club up. <laughs> I mean, you know, I can make him leave. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, why is he playing "Ode to Joy" on a baritone? <laughs> so where are you residing nowadays? I'm in Jersey. Jersey. Still, so I'm surprised because I know you said like you like to go overseas. So like Europe and people are like, Mr. Len, you taught me how to scratch. I love you. You're a legend. And Jersey's like, yeah, okay, whatever. I mean, I feel like Jersey doesn't deserve you. Yeah, but you know what? It's home. <laughs> so, sometimes it's, it's little things like that that uh, in a twisted way keep you humble. But at the same time, it's uh, operating with that chip on your shoulder. You know what I'm saying? Gives gives you that uh that that kind of I got I'll show them all, you know? <laughs> Even now. Yeah. And now now it's not so much, you know, now I'm just I'm an old dude. You know what I'm saying? So like now it's like I'm just shaking my fist at the kids, like, get off my lawn, you It's funny, it's cause I you know, I had you know, I've had on a lot of your peers, I had on uh uh Prince Paul, Don Newkirk were on the episode. I had no idea that they were involved in like Pity the Fool. I had no idea Newkirk was in the dicks either. And for me, that guy's so amazing, and like you, like I don't hear enough about him, and I wish yeah. I had more time to talk to him. Especially like people, like uh, you say, oh, you know, we're old and everything. I'm I'm kind of close to y'all's age, and I love having people from y'all's era on. I just I felt like people like that need more shine. So with Pity the Fool, Newkirk helped me uh, mix Taco Day. We had so much fun, bro. Because you know, a, a lot of what happens in that song is uh sound effects. So the sound of the car starting, like. Some 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 things like you know we were able to pull from uh, from records or whatever. Some things like we we went and like got the live sounds, bro. We had fun putting that record together, and like it got dark like at the end, like because like when she goes on the shooting, you know what I'm saying? It was like we you could feel the mood change, and then like there was something that happened. I'm trying to remember what effect we put in. And it, it broke the tension, man. Like, yo, we must... I, we, I just remember we was in tears laughing. Paul, the song I did with uh, Lord Sear, I uh, actually rhymed on that song. I wanted Paul to mix it. Because I, I, like, I like Paul's ear. Like, when um when he mixed uh, some of the stuff on Balloon Mind State, I like his use of compression. So, like, I actually wrote that, <laughs> I wrote that verse for uh, the Lord Sear thing in his house and like recorded it and he mixed it uh you know a couple of days later in his crib yeah i mean i would expect no less from people that worked on the pootie exactly. tank soundtrack <laughs> <laughs> well i know we're jumping around in the timeline but so legend has it you ran into lp at a birthday party but you you actually dj'd at 
his birthday party. Which 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 one? Was I right? DJ at his birthday party. We had a, a mutual friend whose birthday was around that time, and they asked me to to DJ the party. The the history is well documented. What I want to know is so juvenile techniques comes out as a twelve inch. At that point, are you like, yeah, bring on the groupies? That's it. I'm a rap star. I'm famous now. Nah, for me it was super humbling. I remember I, I got the twelve inches. I took him to the store around here in Elizabeth, Elizabeth, New Jersey, and uh, <laughs> took him to the store. And I was telling the dude, like, "Yeah, you know, we we're getting play on uh, Stretch and Bob. You know, this is our single with Company Flow." And I and dude was like, "I'm not interested." He was like, "Not even trying." He didn't even want to hear it, right? So I was like, "Damn, that that kind of sucks." And then uh, when I'm when I'm walking out, this dude goes, "Yo, I." I I want I want that record. I was like, what? He's like, yeah. So like, you know, I sold him two copies. So I think it's worth like, you know, ten bucks. And uh the first person to ever buy the Coflow record. Flash forward, that dude ended up DJing for Princess Superstar. His name is Alexander Technique. He does like a lot of like dance stuff now. <laughs> up a record store and like we were like one like he like he had to have us as like his first in-store because like that was the first record he bought and that's what made him realize like if the stores out here are gonna sleep then i have a lane and he opened up an independent hip-hop record store and did well for a while you know i'm trying to sell the record so i'm not trying to sell a record to somebody in the store i'm trying to sell a record to the store Very interesting. So to this day, you know, there's there's still a little bit of confusion on why CoFlow's no more. And before I even go any further, before I probe, I kind of feel like you want to leave it that way. Yeah, I mean, it's really not much to tell. Like, like most people think of groups as like, you know, we were like uh, longtime friends, you know? Like, we had just kind of met each other in 93. So, uh, well, nine, like late 92, 93. So, like, you know, me and L, because we were closer in age, like, you know, we probably were a little tighter, even though Just was his roommate. You know what I'm saying? But it, it's it's like college. You know what I'm saying? Like, like not everyone's still friends with, like, their college roommates, you know? Or, like, you know, you don't always hang out with them. So, you know, it, it was kind of, like, grow, growing apart was, was way easier, you know what I'm saying? And, and not as controversial as people think that it was. Well, the only reason why I thought it was is because a lot of people, at least early in their careers, when you strike gold and you sell quarter million copies, a lot of people will suck it up. But I feel like you guys are real human beings and you can't put a price on your well-being or your happiness. So you did what you had to do. Yeah. Also, we didn't know we sold that yet. <laughs> <laughs> I, and you know, I'll, I'll, I'll keep it a buck with you, man. Like if if the money was there, right, probably things would have been different because that, that's just real. It's like. Why not? Like if like you say, let's say like we made uh together three hundred thousand dollars off off that record. I'm just making up a number. That's this is not anything, right? So like like you know if if we said okay, wow, we just made three hundred thousand off that record, maybe we'll make a million off the next one. That's just how people that don't have a lot of money think. Mm-hmm. So it's like yeah, if I did this one time, let me try it again. If it don't work, I still have you know we still have yeah look we still got the money left from the first time you know. So it wasn't uh it definitely wasn't money. 
Because then, then later on, we got the money. We could have, you know, got back together. But, you know, by then, it's just like, nah, you know, we're we're in our place. You know, like we're just doing his thing. L's doing his thing. But I think you guys, you know, I, I don't know where I am in the timeline here, but you guys made amends and you wanted to follow up the big successful record with little Johnny from the hospital. And Rockus was like, nah. And I mean... In this day and age, if you have a successful record and you want a little bit more creative freedom, I would I would like to think that they usually give it to you. Yeah, so that that's not how Little Johnny happened. Little Johnny wasn't necessarily a it sucks because like it wasn't a follow up to Fun Crusher. It was just like we just made a different record, you know? Like it wasn't supposed to be Yeah, it just wasn't supposed to be like a, a sophomore record. It was an instrumental record, you know? And because it wasn't unofficial, you know, we we released it through Rockers. So that literally is the only company flow record that Raucous like can like tangibly have. Uh, the record came about because towards the end of making Fun Crusher, like all all the all the all the creation through Fun Crusher, I don't really have equipment. You know, like I'm I'm a, I'm a teenage dude from Jersey. You know what I'm saying? So like I'm working at a a store and you know I'm going to school. So like just like many kids that's 17, like you don't have a sampler. Like I didn't even have my, my own turntables when I'm doing those cuts. Like I'm borrowing friends and practicing over other friends' house. So like when we finished at towards the end of Fun Crusher, I was able to buy an MPC 2000. The only thing on Fun Crusher, I think that's no two things on Fun Crusher that's the MPC is the beat before um, Last Good Sleep and Fun Crush Scratch. All of those NPC 2000. I was able to buy it and I was like, yo, I'm making beats every week. Yo, I'm going to put out a beat record with Raucous. Actually, no, I just said I'm going to make a beat record. And uh, talked to Ella about it. I was like, yo, you know, we should shop it to Raucous. So Raucous was like, I bet. Raucous never uh, was against doing the instrumental record. This is to their credit. Now, for me, the record was supposed to be a lot different. There's a song called No Lock that was originally, I think, called like Lock Nine or something. And it was supposed to be a lock rule for the vinyl. And they wouldn't do it because they wouldn't, uh, they, they were scared they were going to get the record sent back. There was a bunch of things that, you know, it was supposed to happen on that record that uh, subliminal things that I had put in the record that like they, they w- I couldn't use and shit. And uh, that, that was the only like pushback we got from Rockets for, for Little Giant from the hospital. But like they, they would never like know this is you know because they knew it wasn't a, a follow up. So Pain Cave was like supposed to kind of be the official follow up. <laughs> like I think that was a name we were joking around with or you know kicking around, but we definitely didn't settle on Pain Cave. Well, I it's you know I really feel for you guys because I read things like you know most most groups break up when they're done, but you guys broke up right before you started a tour, and then you had to open up for the Beastie Boys at the Electric Factory, and then you got booed. And that obviously had nothing to do with your music, but maybe the crowd kind of picked up on that tension, that vibe. No, it, it's kind of customary because I, I asked, I thought about that too from when that happened. It's customary to boo the opening act at a at a rock show, supposedly. You know what I'm saying? Because I remember I <laughs> I got mad. We was on stage, and like, you know, people when when especially in Philly, like when when they yell at you, like you know, they they yell all kind of crazy shit. So I said, "Well, fuck it." I picked one dude out of the crowd <laughs> and was like, yo, when all this over, I'm coming for you. He's like, no, no, bro. It's not like that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, someone, someone later explained to me what, what, what happened. 
they didn't let a lot of the, the co-flow fans in. So a lot of what we were getting was, we just want to see the Beastie Boys. We don't know who you guys are. Now, we were performing all the, the co-flow, most of the co-flow uh, heads were outside. And, like, they were getting into it. Like, they were having fun. That's interesting how concerts worked back then. Or I'm, I'm sure it still kind of does yeah. kind of work that way. I mean, well, we'll find out because now everyone has a chance to do it over and do it better. Yeah. But while we're waiting, though, it's just like if, if you guys want to make some some new fans out of your old stuff, like Company Flow is on Spotify. And I don't know if it was because of Raucous and once Def Jux folded, the only thing that LP walked away with were the masters to his records. So as a result, you become kind of this terrible keeper of your own history. But this this quarantine time was like a very advantageous time where new fans could really discover the old stuff. Wow, I don't know where people get the information from. Uh, so none, none, none of that's really right. Uh, we, we own Fun Crusher. The issue is uh, we with most hip-hop records is sampling. Like, all, all, I'll play this. All, all the pull and, and like attention that L gets now that people pay more attention so like where at one point a, a sample that that was ignored you know what i'm saying now all of a sudden hey man that's my guitar you know what i'm saying so like now now everything's an issue yeah uh it, it not being there and and and, and uh and not being available is is more to protect us because like i i know i know i don't have the money to pay for that and i, I definitely know l don't have the money we've been We've been approached many times to to re-release that record by different people, and like you know, we we've had serious talks about it, and like you know, there there were times that you know, it it, it almost happened, but uh, yeah, we we own we own uh we own we own Fun Crusher. That's good. That I'm I'm yeah. so thankful you cleared that up, man. And I I think it's an easier workflow for something like Nine AM Blues, where the record's recorded in a week, it's released the next day, and, and then it becomes one of your favorite projects ever. Right. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, you know, it's funny you brought that up. But uh, I was just looking at uh some 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 correspondence with Macy's behind Nine AM Blues. Cause they used it in, in a couple of commercials. That is interesting. <laughs> so this, this is the thing, man. And like when, whenever I hear and I see people uh, like joke about people that, Oh, I don't hear from him anymore. Maybe he's like, you know, shoveling shit for a living. You know, it's, it's one of those things. Like I, I realized like, yeah, people don't really know. It's not even just the industry, but like how artists work. Like if you're, if you're a working artist, you're more than just a, uh, you're more than just a gig musician, you know. If you know how to work publishing, if you if you know, uh, yeah, if you know how to administer your publishing, like you, you can you can survive out here. Before Rockus was even in the picture, you're dealing with with labels. Like now, now you know, like it's not just about putting out records and, and dealing with labels. But at the time, it was all around frustrating though, because mm-hmm. there's affiliations with Tommy Boy, Libra. That whole situation probably just pushed you further into label bitterness. Mm-hmm. So maybe that, hey, maybe I could do sync licensing. Maybe I can, um, you know, do some sampling. My music can go in commercials. It, it, it was frustrating, but but at the same time, it was uh, it's kind of empowering because you you're not you're dealing with them, but you're not locked into anything. You know, I, I started interning at fifteen. I had a job at Jive Zamba by the time I was like seventeen, eighteen. You know, and this is like the beginning of co flow. So, like, I've I seen a lot of these things, you know, and uh, it's it's when you're not locked in, 
that you can appreciate it and you're empowered. So like, I remember playing uh, some co-flow stuff to the A&R at Jive and he was like, yeah, so this isn't commercially viable, you know? And at the time we were already getting radio played through Stretch and Bob and like, you know, uh, I think, I want to say Hank Love and Half Pint might have been playing it too and uh, definitely Ness out in Seattle. So like, you know, there was, we had buzz, but it was just, it was funny to know that like, yeah, the people that think they understand it all don't actually know shit. So dealing with like a, a, a major label was like, yeah, you're just kind of spitballing. Like, you know, I, I know you don't really get it, you know? So it wasn't, it, it's only frustrating, like I said, when, when you're, when you're locked into a contract and like, you know, you, you can't, you can't do anything. And, you know, I, I don't, I don't know how many people uh you've interviewed that, that have been in that position, but like, you know, that that definitely is frustrating. Yeah, I, I like Matador just because they weren't locked in on hip hop. You know, you had uh, nonfiction and Large Professor, but you also had people like Modest Mouse and a whole bunch of other people, Paul Berman, DJ Eclipse. So it was like it wasn't just a hip hop label. It was maybe it was a record that could or a label that appreciated just musicians in general. So maybe it was a little easier. Yeah, Mat- Matador though, um, <laughs> they they bit off more than they could chew because like they they kind of came in not really knowing much, much of anything. Really. Some people can can get on through buzzwords, you know? And then like when when the reality sets in that like, yeah, you know, these aren't the the guitar wielding, uh, you know, sweaty rock rock dudes that, that you're used to dealing with. If you if you sign a large professor like bro, like you have a chance to have a Nas song, you know what I'm saying, on your label. That's a big deal. You have a chance to have a Buster Rhyme song on your label. That's a big deal. But if you got to Google and ask all these people who who these people are, then things get lost. You know, the one thing Matador definitely had was uh, just the drive. You know, like they, they they were fearless because like they were just like, well, fuck it. We'll go. We'll just, you know, we'll make the shit work. And like they, they pushed your songs into places where it didn't necessarily uh, it seemed like it was gonna fit. So it was ambitious. Yeah. Well, so the the track like you know people are shady, which wasn't on Fun Crusher officially, but that that song was about no. like label. That heads, that right? was an old song from ninety four. Before things got frustrating. Yeah, yeah. This is like if if, if he, I'm trying, I can't really remember what the song is about right now. But like if he if he was talking about anything label wise, it would have been Libra. Mm. yeah it's, for me it's just like uh when you put out projects and that, you know that's not on matter right right i know that came later uh you know i was just hoping maybe at that point uh you finally found a record label that kind of understood a little bit of what you guys were going through and it wasn't frustrating yeah that, that would be me i, I started smacks records and then I- <laughs> there you go <laughs> and then one of my favorite is like when you put out projects with the brunswick catalog now i am exposed to music i didn't know anything about so now i get to dig on irma franklin barbara acklin lionel hampton and i was like wow i didn't even know any of this music exists existed and now i can kind of see what you did with it and learn more about the history of music Just a little bit Can you really stand to lose me? Oh baby, 
So Brunswick, uh, I, I had been dealing with Brunswick from when like, I, I met the Tarnapoles. Those are the owners, it's Mara and uh, Paul. Paul mainly runs the label. But I met them when I was working at Jive. The, the way they approached uh, people sampling them, I was I was cool with it. Because like there were some things they just let go. They were like, oh, that sounds cool. But like if you if you had like a really big record, they're like, come on, man. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like you couldn't be, I said like back then, like, you know, you you couldn't be like Whitney Houston or something and, and sample like a Brunswick record. Cause they would have been like, no, you know, we know who you are, you know? But like, you know, let's say like I sampled it. They'd have been like, hey, good luck. <laughs> you know? Their their approach to uh to to the business was was at least to me very fair, you know? Because it was just like, yeah, give the little guy a break. Yeah, because I mean, the reality is, many touring musicians have to spend their lives performing songs that they made in their twenties. So that kind, of, when you do things like that, it opens things up a bit right. for you as an artist and a performer. Right. I, and I, I don't think that uh, I don't think that there was any samples that they didn't clear. Like I, there was, there's certain people that they didn't. Like you know, like let's say if you want to sample Bohannon, you got to deal with Bohannon's estate, even though it's a Brunswick record, you know. And I like whatever, whatever, however that worked out. You know what I'm saying? Like I, I don't, I don't pretend to know their business. You know, however that worked out, that worked out for Bohannon. But like I, I know that you know when we did that that 45 box set, uh, one of the things that I was going to do was tour it as a uh, as a roller skating jam, and uh, we had spoke to the Shy Lights. I said that at that point, I was like, yeah, I can't afford to do this. <laughs> that would have been awesome, though. Yeah, yeah. Cause they were like, "Yeah, you gotta let us know, cause we're about to do Disney." And I was like, "Oh, like, yeah, I don't have that kind of money." Oh man. Well, so the the, the quarantine kind of gives you a little bit more time to kind of focus and have tunnel vision on your music. Is there is there anything that you want to plug? Like I said, CoFlow is going to be on streaming pretty soon here. LP promised is going to happen. So, is there anything from yeah. your end that you kind of want to plug or promote right now? You know, just follow me on, on Instagram. There's there's little things that's that's popping up here and there. I will be doing radio again soon. Like I did a XM for for a while, this particular radio. So like you know, I'm uh, looking forward to doing radio again. Let me let me uh, shoot my shot here. All right, team up with me and let's release. We are Uniblab. <laughs> Wait, what you know about we are Uniblab? Look, man, with Chadwick's passing, you know stuff like this is important. Pop culture, it, it resonates with the people. Let's do it. Let's br- let's bring Len back to the radio in that form. That's what I'm hyped about. Let's do that. Wow. So here's something for for your people about We Are Uniblad. The original, original We Are Uniblad was a a pilot that I uh, I shot. Basically, it was supposed to be like a black nerd pilot. It was myself, uh, this dude Neil Drumming, who was writing for, at the time, Entertainment Weekly. This dude Evan Narcisse, who was doing uh, video game reviews for, I want to say, Wired and something else. G3 or something like that. And then Tanahasi Coates, <laughs> who was like, you know, basically book reviews and stuff. But this is before Tanahasi, you know, and, and Evan are who they are, because like now they ended up writing for Black Panther and you know Tanahasi's, you know, Tanahasi. But like it was a pilot that that I had shot and shopped to uh to BET. And that that's when I started uh We Are Uniblab. BET wanted to change it. And I was like, nah. Cause like they, they like, at the time they would have added uh a lot of like little Wayne and stuff to the the existing idea, and you know, I didn't I didn't want that. Yeah, 
This is before blurs were blurs. You know, they didn't know anything about that. Right. I can't thank you enough for being here, man. You know, like I said, we're we're Labor Day, man. But you're sharing a piece of yourself with my show, man, and I, and I appreciate you. Hey, thank you, man. I'm glad I could be here. Bro.